0: Looking to optimize your performance, grow your mind, and change your system? Well, you've come to the right place. This is the Bold Base Performance Podcast.
1: Hello, friends. Welcome to the show. Today, we have Coach J.T. Ayers as our guest from the Track Football Consortium community. Coach Ayers has been coaching track and field for 13 years and is a two-time Orange County Track Coach of the Year. Since taking over as head coach at Tribuku Hills in 2014, his athletes have broken 31 grade level, 7 school, and 2 all-time Orange County records, and his teams have ranked number 1 in Orange County for 3 different years, 2015, 2016, and 2018. Coach Ayers is currently the Executive Director of CoachAyers.com and teaches full-time at Tribuku. You can find links to his Twitter account, website, and articles he has written for Simply Faster in the show notes. Brad and I would also like to announce we are starting to create online courses for athletes, parents, coaches, and therapists. You can check out our lower body mobility course in the show notes and look forward to our Athletes with Asthma course coming out in June. Thank you for your time and let's continue to grow the mind and change the system.
2: And all I really want to do is just go do like straight leg bounds with like my team, you know, and I just all <laughs> I want to right. do is go out like, yeah. So I, I'm waiting for the day for them just to give me the green light to even just meet with a small group of kids. Um, you know, and I know we're going to talk about that, but, you know, I just couldn't help but think when track coaches, especially sprain sport coaches, and I want to speak for everybody, but for me especially in um, you know, my priorities in life um, track is, is a high priority. Cause I mean, this is, it's a calling and being able to be with these kids day in and day out and be able to have a lot of influence and in what they're going through and just being able to hear them. That's been like, it was stripped away in a moment's notice. No, no opportunity really for influence. And, and there was a time where especially for like a month and a half, you do what you can where you'll do zoom calls and you'll text message and you'll send workouts out. But at the end of the day, like, there comes a breaking point, especially for teenagers where they're just not sleeping good and they're not eating good. And I mean, I have a few athletes that are remarkable kids, remarkable athletes, like division one type kids. And, uh, one of them or two of them actually are like, um, their parents work and they're the only child. And so they're like, I just sit at home all day. And I'm like, man, I, I wish I can just call and have you come and just, Be down the cul-de-sac and we'll just do a bounce fire series or we'll lurk, you know, work on plyometrics or we'll do a flying 10 with a free lap device. We'll do something just to get these kids out because, you know, part of part of my heart feels like it was ripped out because I'm unable to be with the people that I feel like I have an opportunity to have influence with. So that's that's been like one of the biggest things to deal with with this COVID-19 stuff is you just never know what you're able to or not able to do. And you just feel like you're letting people down, even though you're really not.
1: I feel so bad for, like you said, uh, uh, kids or yeah, kids without siblings, because I had three brothers growing up. We're all close in age and we all like sports. So right now, if this was happening, if we were that age now, we would just be like playing outside every day or like playing video games together or just like, at least we'd have like that connection versus like, if you're an only child, You just got to be going and your parents work. You got to be going insane because you can only watch so much TV or um, do so many things by yourself. And it's also hard to when like someone in a position like you, like you could go to a field and like conduct a workout and like do the social distancing. But then you like you have to ask yourself, am I setting the best example for everyone else? And like, am Mm -hmm. I leading the way I want to? And that gets tricky, too, because you're trying to help the kid you're also trying to, you know, set the example during this crisis that everyone else is trying to figure out and no one knows the answers.
2: Right. I mean, I have, I got to coach somebody. I mean, it's just who I am. So my, I have 11 year old, two, eight year olds and a seven year old. Um, those kids are going to be fast coming out of this thing. I can guarantee that like <laughs> the speed training we're doing, the I man, I had him do a plyo series yesterday. I mean, the kid's seven and he's like, my butt hurts so bad. And I was like, it's good. That means we worked on your glutes and your hamstrings. He's like, what's wrong with you, dad?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I saw you post the other day. It's uh, from the talent code where the youngest or like the fastest sprinters in the world are usually like the youngest sibling in their family. And now that oh, you yeah. said, do you, do you feel like your seven-year-old has a distinct advantage because the seven-year-olds always are with the eight-year-olds and
2: the 11-year-old? You know, that's a really interesting, when I read that, I thought it was extremely interesting. Um, And there's a lot to be said about birth order. And there's a, I know I've read a book on birth order and even like, I mean, the book, there was a part of the book that I read, I forgot who wrote it, but there's a part where it says like, based on birth order and the type of personality that comes from birth order. um, It typically where the two youngest siblings of a family tend to get married, whereas like the older and the middle- Children of a family tend to get married. And um, like I have one daughter, so she's a firstborn daughter. She's not necessarily the second sibling. And there's all these different ways to look at it. And, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But when you look at birth order and speed and you see that like Asafa Powell is the sixth kid of, you know, six and Bolt is the second of three kids. And even Gatlin was the youngest of four. And, man, kids are going to be chasing people. And um, there's something to be said about that. For sure. And my seven-year-old came out of the womb, like bigger and badder than everybody else. Like <laughs> he's just big. And I don't know if that's because he's the youngest yeah. or God just smiled on him a little more. Um, like when I'm wrestling, all the kids, we're having fun. Like I got to go a little harder on that one. Cause he's going to hurt somebody. But the fact is, is that, yeah, and you look at, I don't think it was like the 12 fastest times ever recorded. They're all the, like if not the youngest the second to youngest kids so for sure they have someone to look up to i mean if you guys are watching the jordan documentary i mean jordan one of the first or second episode he talked about how his brother was better than him and how um how jordan even at a young age will look at his dad give his older brother like kind of all this recognition or even like attention and jordan's like i felt like i needed to um like fight to get that attention and And that's a a sad commentary on itself too. But I think the fact is, is that Jordan at like four years old is like competitive, you know, and whereas my oldest son, I'm also the oldest of my family, but my oldest son doesn't have to be as competitive because he doesn't really have anybody to compete with really. And so, yeah, I think there's something to be said. I don't, I don't have like a doctoral thesis about why that is, but I do think it's interesting. It was a fun post to put on Twitter for sure.
1: I agree. So I have, I have three brothers. One is a year older and then two are younger. And there was a time like late middle school or early high school, someone we were playing like pickup football and someone picked my little brother over me. And that really irritated me. And he's like a pretty good athlete anyways, but like just that drive. Okay. I can't have my younger brothers better at me in sports. Like I just can't imagine like having that force of like, I wish I was my, my youngest brother, Sam. Cause he was always playing with us and you just learned, you learn different things, you learn different strategies and you're, you're always trying to level up to, to the natural competition, which would be your siblings. And Brad is Brad's interesting cause he's the youngest of three. So like we had a little different childhood in terms of like that birth order um, and different competition and just different influences you have in your life naturally. Um, same thing with like having neighbors and cousins and things like that. I always find that stuff super interesting. Cause like, you look in the NFL and like Payne Manning's the oldest sibling and he is probably the best one. Um, but that does so it doesn't always mean like the youngest one's always the best athlete. So we always try to compare like, is it better to be the older one or the younger one? Um, but that's speed that really kind of stuck out to me. And, uh, especially when you reposted it.
2: Yeah. You, uh, you do with what you're given, right? I mean, 100. regardless. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think the talent code, it was an awesome book. Um, if anybody's listening, Daniel Coyle is the guy that wrote it, and Talent Code is the book. Um, you take it for what it is, but I think at the end of the day, it had to do with this idea of like almost like a growth mindset, where the youngest sibling, you know, or even you know, regardless of who you are, there's this drive of this failure is not something that um, stops me from growing. And failure isn't part of the process, and not just part of the process the most necessary part of the process is failing or um, finding a mistake and growing and learning from that. And think about a younger sibling. I mean, all they do is get beat all the time because they're younger, smaller, not as fast, whatever the case is. And they're constantly trying to live up to all these different people I mean, they're failing. I mean, that's that's The Younger kids have to have grit, whereas the oldest one is I win. <laughs> I win again. Oh, I won again. Um, you know, something I'm doing with my own kids is we have this Google doc and when we're running, I have, we've done it for a couple of years now where it has their age. And then we write down their 10 meter fly or their 30 meter fly, or even their we run a 300, which is literally down the cul-de-sac around the little Island and back. Um, and so now we, we write their marks down. And so my seven-year-old's like, well, how fast was Jordan when he was seven? I was like, oh man, you're crushing him. And he's like, okay, I see what's, you know, like, it makes sense now. And so, you know, I guess maybe I'm feeding into that. Um, I'm not shy of that. The one thing though, is that something I mentioned earlier about this competition is even my 11 year old, who's the oldest, I want him to compete against himself. And I do the same thing with my athletes at, um, Tribuco, the school that I coach at, um, you need to compete against yourself. You don't necessarily need a big brother. You need, What are you doing? How are you getting better? What does the process look at look like? And does data prove or show and reveal what you should be doing? So there's things I do where I'll have a freshman take off and I'll have the, you know, the second fastest kid in the state run after him. And I've gotten really good at making sure that gap between them is is, you know, pretty substantial, or at least fair enough where at the finish line they're both leaning, trying to kill each other and beat each other and um, I mean, that's the whole idea of the like talent code and myelin, and, and feeding into the idea of um, you know failing and growing from those mistakes, learning from them at a pace that makes sense to you. Um, it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. When you were saying that, that definitely spoke to me because I was like Thompson. I'm the youngest of three, um, so I felt like growing up, I would never. So our big sport was basketball in my house, and I would just never be able to beat my older brothers. So that's kind of what, when I dove into like training and understanding how to work out and I was like, okay, if I can't beat them in a game, I have to be able to like dunk better than them or like, so I just got to have something, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, and then that kind of leads into, I feel like now where I'm at in my life is I love all the stuff you talked about as far as like growth mindset and just focusing on not worrying about failure and using that as an opportunity to learn and grow, um, and now it's not even like I'm competing with my brothers or anybody else. It's like, I need to get better than I was yesterday. And I see that and like push forward with it. So yeah, I think it's super interesting the, the way that birth order plays into it. But also like you said, just person to person, like I think the earlier you can establish competition even within oneself and understanding that like skills are, are earned and learned and they're not something that you're just born with um, is huge.
2: Yeah, they, my second year of coaching, I, had a, I was doing uh, hurdles and I think sprints at the time. And man, I was still learning. As I look back, I, I laugh at myself, but um, of what we were doing, it made no sense. However, you know the head coach at the time, he did something and I forgot really what it was. I think it was, we had this kid that was on his way for a D1 scholarship to Stanford and he had him run the, he ran the mile and then the eight. And he was running unbelievable times. And then he ran the 3,200. And then we were winning the meet by like 60. And he's like, all right, you got to anchor the 4x4. And I, mean, I, th- I think that was the case. But I remember going, why? And I took him aside and I said, why, why are you making this kid, you know, why are you killing him? Like five minutes ago, he just ran the 3,200. And I think he ran like 8.58 or something like that. And it was unbelievable. Um, and it was by himself doing it. And, you know, and he humbled me because he said, I've been doing this for 35 years. Um, let's just, let's just assume I know what I'm doing. And I didn't say anything, but I've thought about that moment probably every day of my coaching career, because what he basically said was, I know I did it one year and then I, I did it poorly. And I just, you know, I repeated the process 34 years in a row. And I know you probably have heard something similar to that, but I lived it. And I keep thinking like, my gosh, like with growth mindset and things like deep practice and things like constantly growing and learning. I mean, I'm always a better coach the year after I coach. And, um, and if that's, you know, we, I never want to peak. I never want to be a coach that is done learning. And a mentor of mine, he's already retired. And I mean, you just get on the phone with him and he's already talking about blocks and stuff. I'm like, man, you're like 80 years old. Why are you worrying about this stuff? He's like, Oh, I'm constantly learning. I don't want to stop growing. I want to stop learning. And, Every year I look at what I've done and I think, how can I improve? And some of that is with the X's and O's or the science of actually doing sprint and hurdle training or relays. Some of that's getting in conversations and disagreeing with people. Some of that is, you know, some of the things like, you know, I th- I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but it's RPR and what feed the cats is and what other people are doing in different parts of the country. Twitter has allowed me to be mentored by a number. I mean, I'm even talking to you guys and we're not even living in the same state. In fact, you know, we had a little bit of a mix up just talking about, you know, what time zone we we're going to get on this thing, you know. And so it's pretty neat the fact that in today's day and age, you know, we never have to stop growing or learning. Um, our own egos really stop us for doing that. But, you know, if just going back to the talent code and, and the idea of how we learn, how we grow is that's through other people. And I don't want to be like that coach that, you know, said he's been doing it for 35 years. I want to be a coach that says, <laughs> man, I've been doing it for 35 years and I can't wait to learn something new.
1: I absolutely love that message. And going back to the MJ documentary, I think every successful person has hit a point in their life where they, you know, majorly failed, you know, air quotes on fail there at something. And he got cut from his high school basketball team. And you see this all the time where may like, like LeBron grew up without a dad and like, Steve jobs and Bill Gates, like they didn't finish college because they had this like passion and this vision and they just want to go do their own thing. And there's so many examples where it's like, I hit this point in my life where it was like pretty rock bottom or like I worked with a coach who did not agree with me. And like that fuels you to go in a different direction and to be a much better person. And logically, sometimes people are like, Oh, maybe you just never had that. You would have been better. It's like, no, you need some of those, those failures, to drive you to be a better person, because if you have never at anything, you you aren't going to succeed as much at your sport, your craft, your work, your relationships, than if if you have some struggles. You know, it um it's just it's so interesting hearing that story time and time again. And I really wish we had a different word for failure because it's more of like an experience. You had this experience that changed you, and you probably wouldn't have de- maybe would have dove in all this stuff anyways. But it really made you think, I don't want to end up like this, because that's not the example I want to set for my kids, my athletes, and my family. So I really appreciate you sharing that story. We hear that time and time again with coaches of, of all different sports.
0: Well, I, th- I think, too, just the humility of of that. And um, I, I always think of, like, when I first came out of PT school, I was probably like six months in to working, and I was like, okay, I kind of got this thing figured out. Like, I'm you know kind of feeling myself and then i realized like the more that i learn the less that i know and it's something where like every day i'm like focusing on just learning more consuming more and some days i'll feel really good about what i know some days i'll feel like holy cow i have so far to go and it's kind of like a it's kind of cyclical in that way um, but it's definitely something where like i genuinely think whether it's like physical therapy or strength conditioning or coaching or training like there's no, um, there's no like end game. There's no like being the best. It's just like continued improvement. And um, I think I heard it from Gary Vee, But uh, he said like he wants to be the best version of himself the day that he dies. Like continue improving, improving, improving throughout his entire life, kind of like you had said, um, all the way until the very end. And I think that that's like if you can get that mentality locked in, I feel like you're just so much better off and you're so much more willing for that growth mindset.
2: Right. I know we're talking a lot about like, especially as a track coach in California and trying to, you know, to learn about the science of what you do, the best way to learn about the proper posture and the the cues you use to get a kid out of the blocks and work on the acceleration. And, you know, what does Wade Van Niekerk do in the 400 splits and, and you know, things like that. But everything we're talking about is about relationships and building relationships in a way that, I mean, it isn't just, you don't just are done growing as a person in the relationship you have. Like, I feel like my greatest um, attribute or things that I can grow in is the way that I motivate and develop relationships with these kids and then the parents. And then it doesn't stop there. Like one of the highest you know, priorities of my life is my own family. And you look at a couple that's been married for 65 years and they're holding hands and, you know, they're at the supermarket wearing masks, I guess. And then, um but that doesn't just happen. You know, that's something that you continually grow on, grow in and develop. And my gosh, if if I looked at my marriage and I'm saying, I've been married for 35 years, you know, don't talk to me. I was like, man, that's not a marriage that I think I would want to be in, you know. And I think developing the relationship with my wife takes time and patience and effort and a whole lot of failure and then growing from that and then you know one day you can have a marriage that people look at and think that's something that I want that's something that I want to aspire to be like like that's I want to do life with someone just like the way they're doing life and then same with my kids like everything that I do with them like I'm the first person to apologize and say I made a mistake and I'm going to learn and grow from it um and the same with them because we're not really built for growth mindset we're all literally our our disposition on life is be the fixed mindset we're like this is who i am and this is the way it is but that's not true that's not what science says that's not the way that we truly experience things and so i mean i'm constantly trying to teach myself as much as i'm trying to teach my own kids that it's okay to make a mistake and that's a good thing and let you know grow from it don't be a fool you know don't be foolish but if you're intentional and I think that's the key word is intentionality with everything you do. If that's as a teacher in the classroom or Brad like you as a physical therapist or even just doing a podcast, you guys are intentional about what you do and how you do it. you're going to grow and get better.
1: I love that message and I really think that ties into the feed the cats mentality where you see all these coaches and they are coaching the way you wish you were coach as a kid or the way you want to coach. And you see all these different examples of, you know, like optimized performance, you know, maximize rest, give these kids the best experience possible. Um, mm-hmm. So can you touch a little bit on how you got involved with uh, the TFC community, the Feed the Cats mentality, when you started using RPR and timing your sprints? Kind of give us that background and we can dive into that a little bit here.
2: Yeah, so we're circling back on the idea of having mentors. I'm not smart enough to know how to do a lot of this stuff. So I just was a constant observer of how other people were doing things. And when you watch, when you watch a team, like there's a team out here named Rio Mesa and they're the Ventura County, which is like six hours for me. But I constantly saw them have success with different kids in different ways. I was like, man, what are they? Something they're doing is really fascinating. So I found their coach and asked if I could take them out for a burger and a soda. Um, oh, and if you guys don't know, a soda is like a pop. <laughs> but out here, we call it soda. So, um, you know, I, we, we developed a relationship, a friendship, and he became a mentor of mine. And um, out of the blue one day, he's like, hey, you should look up uh, Tony Holler." And I was like, I don't know who that is. And I mean, I'm in California, and I don't know what you guys do in the Midwest. And I mean, the fact, I mean, I found out that you guys were a lot of the teams because it snows, which is funny, because, I mean, January 4th, we were on the track running, and you guys were... Everybody was rolling out runways in the middle of their hallways doing things. I mean, I saw it on Twitter. I thought, oh, I'm so, so lucky and blessed to be <laughs> in California. Love it, love it, yeah, so um, I got in contact with Tony, and uh, I think it was through Twitter. Tony immediately said, hey, let's hop on the phone. I mean, he didn't know who I was, and we had a three-hour conversation. And that's a testament to not just Feed the Cats, but the type of guy he is. And we're talking about a guy that never peaks, right? A guy that's never done learning. Um, him and I even had a disagreement about the way that you lift in the weight room. And he even, he's come around and said, Hey, I like what you do. And uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, that's a guy that's not done learning or growing, I mean, that's who we should aspire to be like, regardless of the way that he does things, the type of person and coach that he is, that's a person that I want um, my future, you know, my children and we have a future coach for. So So, I got in contact with Tony and we talked a lot. And then we realized that a lot of the principles that we train our athletes by are very, very similar. Um, He said something that, you know, happy, healthy athletes, that's what he wants at the end of the year. Um, It is a brutal sport, track and field, especially in California, because there's something like six weeks in a row you have to qualify for the next round. And it's just, it's a slaughter fest. It's so difficult to get the kids to get to the state championship. And then, not alone, just when you get there, then compete. I mean it's a it's 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 difficult. It's like hunger games. Um but uh you know having athletes that are happy that want to train that are excited about training that see the fruit of their labor that see the reason for discipline they see accountability by you publishing their marks and um being real intentional about the organization about how kids are trained. Um that's what Feed the Cats is and that's what Tony does and that's what I want my athletes to have. Um, I want my athletes to see um, the benefit of doing track and field. And I want them to see, I mean, most of the 99% of the athletes that do track and field at Tribuco will never do track or even a collegiate sport ever again. However, the principles are learning with us. They can use everywhere. Um, Maximizing rest, taking care of your body, doing things with intentionality, um, doing it a smart way rather than just the way that everybody else does it. I mean, just because everyone else does it doesn't mean it's right. Um, case in point, we can probably get on a tangent later. Um, the way that relays are done and how handoffs are happening and just you don't have to do it just because Jamaica does it, you know. There's other ways to do things that are make more sense to the kids that you coach and the culture that you are part of.
1: On a side note, would you do well in Hunger Games?
2: Um, let's see, would I do well? I mean, this is really hard to be humble about this, but my God, oh, no, I
1: want an honest answer because I would last about a half hour, and unless I like buddied up with some people, I have like zero outdoor skills, I have zero hunting skills, I would not do super well. <laughs> but I could, I could make friends with some of the other competitors and like use their skills to like my advantage and help them with mine. So I definitely have to team up, but solo, oh man, don't put yeah, your money it, on me.
2: <laughs> in my own mind, I'm running the government in a week and a half. That's how, that's how successful. But in actuality, dude, I, yeah, I'm, uh, as soon as they call my name, I'm not volunteering at tribute. I'm running. Come get me.
1: (laughs) I also get hungry pretty easily. So if I didn't find food right away, I, uh, I wouldn't be, uh, the best competitor at all. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But I really like that message too, where you're like, you're just, you're reaching out for advice and then you're just going off of like principles. So maybe you disagree on like, smaller details, which everyone will from time to time, like Brad and I disagree on small things all the time. But as long as like the message and your direction and your philosophies align and they challenge each other and you grow together, that makes the best, like partnership, mentorship, friendship. And then you're always striving to give back to those people that are helping you. So Tony helped you, you know, do something different with speed training. And then you're trying to help him doing something different with the way you run things. At your school, so I really like that that idea of challenging each other, but you're both trying to grow in the same direction.
2: Yeah, and his legacy is the coaching tree that you know he's able to develop. I mean, just by knowing him, I've been able to meet and talk to so many remarkable, smart people that have made me a better coach, that have made me a better um, leader, and. I've had some, I mean, some unbelievable friendships and even like during this quarantine time, every single coach is at home. Everybody's sitting around and we're all in the same boat. And this is the most, this is the best time to develop relationships, network, grow, learn. Um, I try to have a zoom call with somebody, you know, an hour and a half a day and everybody's willing because everyone's at home. And so, uh, Tony has allowed me even just the opportunity to meet so many different people and see ways that people are doing things in different, different places, like where it snows until March, you know, or, um, you know, or, or the demographic and the, the population that they're pulling at their school. And even just seeing times as actually and the times that are coming out of like, Hey, we just ran the, we ran. So here's an example. My team a couple of years, you know, two years ago, ran the fastest time in Orange County history in the four by one and ended up getting us fourth at the state finals. We're in 41, 24. Um, That would be the state record in almost every state except Florida and Texas, you know, and I didn't check all of them, but um, it's like, man, it'd be kind of fun to go to another state and see what happens.
1: (laughs) You'd have to deal with the snow though. And I don't think you'd appreciate that. So
2: no, Um, no, no, no. No, not at all. If I'm not wearing my sandals and uh, you know, a short sleeve t-shirt where I can show off my triceps, I'm not, I'm not doing it.
1: What do you feel you do different than most of the TFC community? Or what do you do better?
2: Oh gosh. Um, I don't know if I can answer that. I don't, I don't know if I know enough of the TFC. Man, I, I would like to think that I emulate almost everything that they do. I can tell, I can tell you this. I, I feel like I'm really good at motivating and getting the garnishing trust in my athletes. My athletes know that I care about them. Um, and, and to be quite honest, um, I think they run better or compete better because they know that there's a coaching staff that cares about them deeply. Um, the parents know this and, um, I feel, I tell them at the very beginning of the season, I'm partnering with you, the parents and raising your kids for a short time. And I hope that what we do here has a really big impact on the rest of their lives, because, you know, I hope this doesn't sound cliche, but I really want these kids, these young men to grow up to be good husbands and good fathers and good employees and good neighbors. And um, I think track the track program that we run. um, We're intentional about that. I mean, we even have a mission statement that kind of talks and and refers to that. And it's not about wins and losses. I mean, those those are going to happen, you know, regardless of. Know if we try or not, we, just, we care about winning, but not to the extent of, um, you know, sacrificing some of the values that we hold so true. So um, I think one thing that I do well is uh, I lead kids in a way that is truthful. Um, there's a lot of values attached to what we do. I am constantly reminding them of that. And then once they graduate, it's up to them. But I mean, I, I've hold on to a lot of those relationships. And I mean, I, I've become very, very good friends with a lot of my former athletes. Um, one of my former athletes, um, in my first years of coaching, he's grown up and become an assistant coach for me and a godfather to one of my kids. And, um, there's a a few others that, um, went to different military branches, academies, like air force and Navy. When they come back, as soon as they're back and it's a very short period of time, they get to come home, but spaghetti dinner at my house, you know, like that's something that's going to happen. And, um, I haven't been coaching that long, but I'm sure I'll start getting some of the, my former athletes' children going through my program, and that's going to be a really cool thing because I mean, I'm mean i going to be able to see the fruit of, of my labor as a coach and see if like I'm actually doing what I feel like I've been called to do.
0: What, what do you think your uh, superpower is? Because just in listening to you for this last, I don't know, 40 minutes or whatever it's been, um, to me, it seems like communication, like whether it's the relationship with your wife or with your kids or like relaying the information to the athletes about how much you care. Like, it seems like communication, but I'm curious what your take is on that.
2: Oh, communication is key. Um, that's a bit, I would say it's definitely not one of my superpowers It's definitely something I feel like I need to constantly be improving upon. Um, energy is probably my greatest attribute or gift that I have. Um, I I work hard, I play hard, I rest hard. It's just the way I am. And, um, you know, so when I'm at track, like you'll constantly see me running around it. I even bought an, I live really close to my campus and I bought an electric scooter and I can get from my front uh, front door of my house, if I hit that signal right, and I can get to my classroom door in three minutes and 29 seconds. And you better believe that I was writing down my PRs and trying to break that time. And, um (laughs) well, yeah, I mean, I'll take that electric scooter around the track and try to get to different parts and and try to motivate and communicate and, um, get kids excited. And, um, I really love getting excited about, um, and it's not trumped up excitement. This is earned. This is something that the kids have to earn through their effort. Um, but when a kid hits a PR in a practice, um, we're all freaking out, you know, and when a kid runs and, um, passes someone in the four by four, I mean, there's going to be a dog pile at the end of the, at the finish line, you know, and that's, That's something that I love to see coaches do like guys like Dabo Sweeney, who's up and down, jumping up, chest bumping his athletes. Those kids see that he cares because his emotions um, and his entire posture is wrapped around their success. And man, how would you not want to be around somebody like that? And so that's the kind of person I want to be the coach. I want to be, I want to be infectious. Um, I want to have a presence that the kids know, Yeah. I I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm five, nine. Most of my best athletes, six, five, that guy looks down at me when I'm trying to coach him, but yet he sees the enthusiasm in my voice. He sees it through my, my actions. He sees the amount of effort I put into writing a plan for the season or for a week, or even like what the plyo series is going to look like. And then I walk them through that and they see that this is something that they can buy into. It's a lot easier to buy into something that your coach or your leader is trying to get you to be, to be in, in you know see the benefit of if they're excited about it. So if they see the excitement in me, they're gonna feel it the same way, you know.
1: We see that a lot with PJ Fleck and the last couple of years here at the U. Oh yeah. Where row boat man roll the boat, Skyuma. They had an awesome year last year. And he and he has like a different style than a traditional college football coach would have. But it's something that resonates with the kids and it time and time comes again, like you know it's genuine. You know he's for real. And he's starting to get results and more people are buying into it. And it's so infectious. And if I was a kid, if I was a 17 year old kid and I saw him, you know, high fiving his players and chest bumping and, you know, not over promising, like you have to work. We have to do the work. This is where we're trying to go. Why wouldn't you want to go play for him? And same thing. It sounds like you do with your kids. It's like some kids really like track, but most kids like track might not be their favorite sport ever. So if you can get more of those kids to appreciate track and like track and see it, like build their character and help them at their other sports, it's just going to help everybody in the school. It's going to help all the other sports programs and it's going to help you and your team, you know, be the most successful that it can. So um, I really appreciate that you are willing to put yourself out there and do the best because you're not doing the best for you. You're doing the best for your team. And that obviously is going to raise how you do for yourself because you have a better track team, but you're putting all these other kids first. You're putting your family first. And uh, that's just really cool to hear in this time and age where a lot of things can be like, what's in it for me.
2: Yeah. It's funny is that um, I get paid the same if we win or lose. Like there's not a lot of incentive (laughs) um, as a high school coach to do better. In fact, you have to make people care because people, there's just so many things that are happening in high school or the County. And we've been ranked really high in, in orange County and our, you know, our, our division for a while, but nobody cares and no one remembers, but you know what they will remember. Um, when a kid ran, you know, 55 seconds in the four by four at a G, you know, the, at the frost soft level and just held off their best athlete to win a four by four or, um, When this kid, you know, jumped out of his mind and went 18 feet and he's never gone over 16 feet in his whole life. And I think more than ever, track is a really interesting sport because you have all these different other sports coming together. You have kids that have never done sports in their life. Like I mentioned earlier that four by one team, only one of those kids had ever done sports before high school. One of the kids I found running in the PE class, I just happened to go into the bathroom and I watched him run by on the track. I was like, wait, who is that kid? Um, one kid was literally living in Korea two years prior and his English was very poor. Um, we probably messed up his English actually by all the weird things we would say. (laughs) Um, and then we have another kid that was, you know, a 4.8 GPA and rather study and never sleep than run a hundred meter dash. And those kids were in 21, 20, you know, 20, 41, 24, and which is a phenomenal time for a high school team. And so you have all these different demographics coming together and you have football players that are throwing shot put and running sprints. And you have skinny kids that are like all hanging out and playing, you know, Pokemon on the corner and then run around the track a thousand times. And then you have everyone in between. How do you get through to all those different types of people? It's like, well, you know, what do you have in common? We all have in common is that we're going to be disciplined and excited about our craft and our craft is learning how to do something to the best we can. And that's, you know, a hurdle or a long jump or a triple jump or a pole vault, you know, it's we're learning how to do something and we could take those skills about learning how to do something that is difficult and challenging and carry that with us the rest of our lives.
1: Did you grow up knowing you want to be a coach? Oh, heck no. Um,
2: my, I didn't I don't think I wanted to be, I so, my freshman year of college, I met a girl and she was pretty cool. And so um, I think I decided I wanted to be a teacher as soon as I decided I wanted to marry her. Uh, my dad travels for a living, um, always has. And I have no memory of him traveling, actually. I've always had memories of him coaching me. but um, But I just, you know, he traveled a lot. And I thought, you know, what? I don't want that life. I want a life where I could be home. So my wife and I both became teachers. We got married very young. Um, and, uh, and then my, (laughs) the coach at the time that was at my old high school begged me to coach hurdles. And I was like, I don't know what to do hurdles and I don't want to do this. And it took a week before I fell in love with the way you talk to kids, the way you have an audience with them, um, the science behind force application. And even just, especially with hurdles, like what a lead leg and a trail leg can do and all the things you can learn, the science behind it. I just fell in love with it. and. You know, I the next year I coached sprints and hurdles, and then at 26 years old, I was a head coach having no idea what I was doing, but trying the best I could. And um what's interesting about that is that it was a calling once I try to matured up a little bit and figured out what I wanted to do with my life. But just like many things, and probably you too as well, is you kind of fall into things. And um, I don't like to think that you need to find your passion. I think you need to bring your passion with you. I mean, I I like to think that if I was a, a postal worker and I was going, you know, door to door or whatever, mailbox to mailbox, I'd be doing it in a way that I just like I coach track. I'd be excited about it. Maybe not as excited about it, but you know, I'd be, I'd be bringing my passion with me. And that's something that we all have to realize is that, you know, we're not, if your passion and your calling on life is not a buried treasure, you have to seek out and find. And if you don't find it, your life sucks. That's not the case. It's, You bring your passion with you and you fall into things based on circumstances and people and networking and um coaching for me. I mean I I have the best life and um my budget's really tight and I have four kids and my wife stays home and and makes sure that the house doesn't burn down and she's really good at that. But um yeah, I my community is within like a and I live in a very highly populated area, it's a you know, two mile radius. We've turned our life into a small town because I drive an electric scooter to a school that's literally like 800 meters away. And um, yeah, you measure everything in meters, by the way. So it makes more sense to me. But yeah, it wasn't a calling of my life. It was, I mean, early. It was uh, something I fell into and learned to love and brought my passion with me.
1: You can definitely see that in the way you talk about your kids, the way you talk about your work, that... You you kind of fell into this and you're making the best of it and you you're raising your family, you're coaching, and you teach as well. You teach at the school?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm a teacher. Um I teach on campus full-time.
1: And some people might look at that and be like, "Oh, like you're so limited and like all your time is at the school and you're around your kids all the time, but you're making it a situation where it's like, let's make the best out of this possible. Let's give these kids the best program possible." I'm going to do all my research. I'm going to reach out to other coaches and I'm going to make the best track team possible out of this situation. And that's so, that's so awesome here because so many people, whether it's like patients that we work with or at family reunions, it's just, they just like, they nag and they just complain about their situation. And it's (laughs) like, yes, maybe you weren't given like, you know, a silver platter, but like, what are you doing to make your situation better? And going off of that, how do you measure success for you and for your team throughout the year? Do you have different markers or do you have different like goals at the end of the year and you, you track those throughout the year? How do you measure like a successful year or that you've grown throughout the year?
2: I think the measure of any successful culture and not even just program, and I, I tweeted this out a long time ago, and I think you actually caught it because you sent me something, is the stories people tell and the smiles that are on their faces. Um Success for us is not winning, you know, a state championship. I mean, that is successful, but that's not how we measure success. That's just one measure of it. Um, I want every single person, if they run 57 seconds in the 400 or 47 seconds in the 400 or anything in between and various things and the stories they tell from their experience reveal, you know, almost the success that we had. The smiles on their faces at the end of the season, or most importantly, even during the season, that matters. That matters to me greatly. Um, I want it to be a positive experience for everybody. And part of my job is facilitating moments for kids to have. I mean, it's power of moments, right? Like track and field is about building up and getting to a moment where you don't know what's going to happen. It might be good. It might be bad. It might be something you, you look back on and think that was so great but you never know. And in fact, you're constantly on the lookout for that. And I mean, I, in my career, I can just think back and and remember unbelievably awful situations where a baton was dropped or it didn't work out the way we thought, or a kid fell right before the finish line when he was running a, you know, a, a school record or something. But also I remember all the really good moments and, um, you know, being in the corner and jumping up and down and freaking out and, um, being with your, your other coaches or even your other athletes and some of the parents and just losing your mind over what somebody just did. I mean, that's, that's the power of a moment, right? So success for us is driven by the way it's remembered. And so, um, and I constantly am asking questions too, like, you know, how are you doing? How is this experience for you? And I don't want it to always be just, yay, I'm so happy. Like I want you to be the kids in the corner throwing up. Well, you earned that, you know, you ran hard and I'm sorry you're throwing up, but good for you for, you know, choosing to be courageous enough to get to that moment. Um, so for us, like it's not necessarily success isn't just a a mark or a line in the sand that we say we have crossed it. We are successful. Um, it's something that we're constantly thinking about because, the most success that I'm going to have probably as a coach or as a human being are going to be the kids that don't make it to state, you know, the kids that, um, end up becoming team managers or the kid that, um, graduates college and, um, never did track and field, you know, or any sport outside of high school. And then they get to real life and they think back, like that was a positive moment of my life. Like I'm going to remember track and field the rest of my life. Like, my sophomore year and my senior year, like, it's funny, people don't remember the dances. You don't remember prom, but you'll remember state finals. Even if you were watching and you were a, you know, <laughs> um, and we had a kid last year that was a alternate on the relay team. And he's like, this is the best moment of my life. I'm like, you're not even running. Like, you're not even competing. And he's like, this is this is the greatest thing. And, and you know, we got a VRBO and went to the grocery store and he bought a coconut and he was like, this is it. This is the, I'm, this is the highlight of my life. <laughs>
1: That's what you want. That's what you want. You're just trying to make memories for these kids. And so many of us, like Brad and I included, we have so many good memories from sports in high school and growing up. And, and that's how you play it. And if you're not, if you're only there for like the points or the wins or the trophies, like you're going to be disappointed in the end. But if you're there to like make yourself better, make good memories, really improve and just kind of see where that takes you, you're going to have much better recall of how it was instead of only worrying about, you know, the objective X's and O's, the wins, the losses, the championships or no championships. So I definitely agree. And even going off that. The the power
0: of moments thing too, is so important for just like outside of track, but just life, like whether it's a relationship or running a business or anything, life is all about like getting to that edge of the cliff, getting to that like position and not knowing what the next move is. Like, Are you going to fall off the cliff? Is there going to be another road that goes up a ladder? Like there's so many things that could happen. And just preparing yourself for high pressure situations and like leaning into the unknown, both as an athlete, is going to help them so much beyond their life, even if they never run again in their life. Um, So, yeah, I, I love that you said that just because that ties into, I mean, even like things that Tom and I are working through right now where. Um, you know, we're able to pull from our different experiences growing up or in sports where you quote unquote fail or things don't go your way or you're in uncharted waters. And then that's when it's exciting because that's when it's like, hey, this could be really bad. This could be really good. Either way, let's dive in head first and figure it
2: out. Right. I mean, uh, a defining moment or a memorable moment is it's an experience that's memorable and meaningful. And so every coach, track and field is so good at that because everything's measurable it's tangible. Um, and you can see it. And so there's some things you can do with that. Like when your eighth heat of the hundred meter dash is going on, like, where's the head coach? Is he on the sidelines and he's, you know, talking only to the the kid that ran 10, five, or is he at the finish line, high-fiving the kid that ran 12, five, because that kid just PR'd by, you know, four tenths. like that's a big moment in that kid's life. And a high five can do a lot of things for somebody, you know, and, um, as a head coach, especially like your primary responsibility is to make kids feel that they're cared for. They're valued as people, not just what they bring to the team, you know, and you know, we, it's funny is like, you can win a dual meet and 95% of the kids on the team didn't score a point, but yet everybody shares that moment. Right. And that's up to the head coach to cast that vision and make sure that vision is fulfilled, uh, you know, comes to fruition in a way that every single person, that team feels that they contributed to that win or to that experience. Right. So, um, I think that my primary role as a coach is not to make kids faster, which I want to do. And I love to do, but it's to make sure every single kid has a meaningful experience and they earned it. You know, it wasn't, they earned it in a way that, and I helped them get there. And if they don't want to get there, that's their choice. Like, And I say that to them often is like, I will do everything I can in my power to get you to a moment where you choose to be brave and courageous and do something miraculous. And if that's the case, man, we're going to celebrate with you because when you celebrate, I mean, we've, I I, I can just right now reminiscing about times where we've picked up a kid. Actually, I didn't pick him up. Other people picked up the kid and they carried him off like a Rudy situation and they're walking off the track. Like, that's a good moment. Like we want those things. That kid will remember that the rest of his life. Um, so, yeah, that's, you know, I, I don't know why we got on that tangent, but um, we haven't even, we've only kind of been talking about intentionality and motivation. We haven't really been talking about what we do in the weight room and how I get a kid faster, but maybe well, that's for another time. Hey,
0: let's dive into it. Let's dive into it. Let's, let's talk about uh, mass specific
2: force and kind of like oh. what with
0: that
2: okay yeah um so mass specific force is um it's a principle that we live by and the way that we lift weights um it comes from a guy named barry ross who was allison felix's coach in high school um i somehow somebody you know gave me either the book or told me about it and so i ended up buying it and reading it and devouring it and just loved it um So mass specific force is basically the amount of force applied in relation to your body weight or your mass. And so if you're thinking about the way that you run, you're applying force into the ground and you do it in a way that you can apply a lot of a lot of force in the ground. And the more force you apply, you know, the more you're going to get out of it is basically, you know, that's speed. And so components for speed, um, you know, how often do you contact the ground? How much muscular force can you deliver during that? And how much ground contact time is available to deliver that force? So when you think about something as scientific as that, mass-specific force makes sense. So just to kind of like summarize, what we do is we take a hexagon deadlift bar. We lift very heavy with a low amount of reps and sets. So like three by three or three by four. We never go less than 85% of a person's max we lift very, very heavy. And we're really trying to get to that. Like, um, we're trying to avoid hypertrophy, which, by the way, I always tell the athletes, like, we do not want hypertrophy. So that means when you lift weights, um, especially with the deadlift, you're going to utilize the concentric. So you're going to go up. You're not going to go down slowly. Coach Ayers loves going down slowly in anything. That's how you get big biceps, big triceps. You know, that's how you look swole and awesome, but it doesn't mean you're going to be fast. Like don't lift like I do at 24 hour fitness. So my athletes will, um, hop into a hexagon deadlift bar. They'll go, you know, for an example, 90%, they'll go three by three, they'll go up and they'll drop the weight and then they'll reset themselves. They'll go up, they'll drop the weight and they'll go up and it's heavy. And then I typically will have them do apply a metric of some sort. And then they sit for five minutes to replenish the energy system to allow them to do it again. Um, We can do this and we're not adding mass. We're not adding pounds. So, um, you know, I, we kind of developed a ratio called a force number and it's not a great correlation, but at least it's a tangible way to measure progress rather than saying, you know, how much is your, your deadlift? Cause Um, that just because you deadlift 550 pounds doesn't mean you're going to be fast, but if you deadlift 550 pounds and you're 130 pounds, oh my gosh, that ratio between their deadlift and their mass is going to be unbelievable. And so you're going to typically find kids that can lift 2.5, um, as a ratio, you know, to their, uh, mass and, um, their, their, uh, you know, deadlift max that's a pretty amazing ratio. If they get anything above three, they're world-class. And I've only had one or two kids ever above that. We had a, uh, a kid named Jared, and Jared was this little Filipino kid, and he was awesome. And he, for four years, did everything he can to get his um, his uh, force numbers as high as it possibly could be. And he was 122 pounds, and he could deadlift 450. And that kid ran 11-1, and there's no... There's no reason he should have been running 11 1. He was like five foot two, and it was amazing. Um, that has to do with the way that we lift. And so I do not want to add mass. I want to do everything I can to allow them to really dive into um, mass specific force. So, Barry Ross here, I have right here, I just wrote this down. Faster top running speeds are achieved with greater ground forces, not more rapid leg movement. And that's from Barry Ross. The book is called underground secrets to faster running. And if anybody's listening, you can just like send me a a DM and Twitter or something. I'll send you the Amazon book. And um, we only do things that I feel that are beneficial. So we don't squat at all. Um, The football coach doesn't like that because he wants more pounds and, and you know, more LBs. I heard one of them say one time, Uh, (laughs) lbs. gotta add. Yeah. (laughs) Well, fat people don't run fast, and so I try to tell them stuff like that. When you say squat,
1: when you say squat, just to clarify, you mean like a traditional bilateral uh, back squat?
2: Yeah, where you put. Or do you not do any?
1: Like you don't? Do you do like single leg squats or rear foot
2: elevated split squats? Do you do any kind of variations of squats or none at all? So, okay. So what we do is we will deadlift with heavy, heavy weight. Right. We'll do plyometrics. And then I like to take them through some kind of like single leg stability core. So we will do Bulgarian split squats, single leg squats, RDLs, but most of it's body weight. We'll do step-ups, but it's all body weight. Um, Especially since a kid, a a track athlete, runs. So, um, you know, literally like they just run straight all the single, all the time. Um, I want them to be very athletic. And so we need to make sure we do things that enhance the ability not to get hurt. So a lot of physical therapy type activities that we will do, um, given throughout the week, but we do not do Olympic lifts. We don't do any heavy squats. Where we're putting the bar on their back and they go down and they try to come back up because again, we're trying to avoid hypertrophy. Um, I don't want them to, uh, do things that aren't, um, inclined with putting force into the ground in a, in a way that makes most sense to a track athlete.
1: I would assume then your kids aren't as sore the day after or two days after they don't get that Downs effect because you're doing the concentric
2: only have you seen that with them oh yeah I can run we can lift on Monday and I can run them uh, the next day in fact um, Allison Felix in Barry Ross's books he, he had her deadlifting a lot she deadlifted on Monday and then on Friday uh, she ran um, you know, Olymp- or high school Olympic times you know high school times that were like, setting records and she was winning state championships here in California. Um, and because of the things that we do, um, you know, I, I, see tons of improvement. I mean, I see kids constantly get faster through their years of track and field. And, uh, it makes, you know, it makes sense in a way, especially with the hexagon deadlift bar, because you're able to be in a proper posture. It's a lot, and you can drop the weight. Cause the weights around you, it's a lot easier to do a lot of weight in a way that makes most sense where um, you're pushing up rather than trying to control yourself going down. Um, and then I become really good friends because of this with guys I like Brian Kula, who's a coach in Colorado and he's Christian McCaffrey's coach. Christian McCaffrey does everything that we do. I mean, you know how affirming that is when the guy on your fantasy football team that just won you the championship mm-hmm. does mass specific force, bro like I was freaking out. So (laughs) Brian and I have actually become really good friends because we see eye to eye a lot of the same things, but this isn't something I created or, um, or even developed. It's something that I utilize. And I, I mean, I can only do so much. I have to, I have to go for the wins that I can get. Um, If I was a college coach and I had kids longer, or I had a facility that allowed me to do more things, maybe I do more things, but um, mass specific force is how we, how we lift, and so what does a Tribuco, you know, a typical Tribuco sprinter look like? Uh, strong, tall, lean. We are not, you know, my kids do not have huge quads. My kids do not look. They look like Wayne Van Niekirk and they look like Noah Lyles, and they look like um, Jeremy Warner. You know, they don't look like Asafa Powell or you know Ben Johnson <laughs> or Michael Johnson. Like. I don't have those kids. I don't have people that look like that, like they're playing linebacker for the Chicago Bears. I have a few
0: more specific questions for that. So
2: um, because we were
0: looking at some of your videos before this of doing just that when you do the concentric hex bar um, and it looked like they were all barefoot. Do you always do it? Oh, okay.
2: No, I I, (laughs) that becomes a, you know, choose your battles kind of thing. Yeah. The kids that you were seeing were like, let me do a barefoot. Let me do a barefoot. Okay. You know, that's fine. Um, I would rather them wear shoes and that's not so much because it has to do with the science of how they're pushing and stuff like that. It has to do with the weight rooms gross and there's bars being dropped all over the place. And man, I don't even know why I'm going to share the story with you, but you know what? You, it seemed like we're good friends, right? We've been talking for a <laughs> while. Last summer, I had a kid that dropped a a kid dropped a bar. They actually were goofing off, but he dropped a bar and he and he uh, severed the top of his toe off. And it was the nastiest thing I've ever seen. And I'm like, I thought he just hit his toe. And I looked down, I was like, Where's your your toes gone? Like, your what? big toe's gone. And I looked over and there it was. It was on the ground, bloody. <laughs> and so um, you know, you call the ambulance. The edge Um, of the bar caught it or the actual weight bumper, like the bumper plate caught it or what? Let me see if I can describe to you on a podcast how that happened. So basically there's like 280 pounds on the bar. And if you know anything about a hexagon deadlift bar, you step into it and there's a bar in front of you and behind you. Well, two kids, one kid grabbed one end of the bar and the other kid grabbed the other one. And they both decided to pick it up. One kid was barefoot. The other kid dropped his side. And so that part of the bar, like, went straight up and the other part slammed down because the, the, the weight was not distributed evenly. And it like literally caught his end of his toe. You know, the good news about the whole thing is that, um, the kid made a mistake and he's like, I, you know, I'm so sorry. In fact, he wasn't even barefoot. He actually went outside cause here in California it rains four times a year. So he's like, I'm going to go outside and frolic in the rain. I'm so excited. And so he came back in with no shoes on. And it's just one thing. It's like a, final destination movie. And there's just one thing after another. He, um, the bar actually, yeah, it, it hit him just right. We called the ambulance. They came, I gave the ambulance guy, the kid's toe in a paper napkin and I was like, good luck. Um, you know, Oh, but the good news about the whole thing is that it missed everything important. And in a month, the kid was running again. Now, not very fast, but he was running and he was able to do track. And, um, the rest of his life, the end of his toe won't be this, you know, half circle shape anymore. It would just be like straight, you know, but Hey, you know what? Power of moments. The guy has a story. Now the rest of his All life, right. he can tell his kid why his toe and why he, why one shoe size nine and the other shoe size seven and a half. <laughs> that's,
1: that's, a, that is
0: that's a great, great story. story. I'm really yeah. glad you went there. I'm really glad you went there. Uh, uh, okay. So the other thing with those videos, so most of the kids, I think, again, it was just clips in a video had lifting belts on. Do you have okay. all the kids who wear lifting belts? Is that just the ones that don't have as
2: much experience? So the lifting, i rather them not have a lifting belt. Um, in fact, I think as soon as you put a belt on, you start um, putting more weight and you sacrifice form a little bit. Uh, and that's just my personal belief, especially with high school kids. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to teach 14-year-olds how to get down in a position. So usually I have 14-year-olds using gobble gobble squats, or he put very low amount of weight on the sides and they're just working on the form. Um, I don't want to do anything that jeopardizes form. So, you know, we talk about the talent code earlier, um, in that book, they talk about this idea of like deep practice or even chunking, um, things together in a way that is slow, but makes sense to the person. So I want to teach kids proper form before they put on a lot of weight. The worst thing that can happen is we put 405 pounds in the bar and they're lifting with their back and they're moving and they're, you know, that's, you're asking for injury there. And so, um, the kids that had weight belts on, it's completely a placebo effect. Um, and you only probably saw three kids that are seniors and they brought their own belt. Cause I do not provide belts for them. And I rather them to go down and weight and maintain proper form than go up and weight and sacrifice form at all. It mean, doesn't make any sense.
1: Right. It doesn't matter if the kid lifts 400 or 405 in regards to how you're going to do at the track meet, but it does matter if they try to lift 405 and they hurt themselves because they sacrifice their form. So like a little less weight and, and, and goes back to the message of like happy and healthy kids. Let's keep them happy. Let's keep them healthy. And if it's a difference of like five to 10 pounds, but they're healthy the whole year because they didn't sacrifice their form to get the lift down. Cause at the end of the day, it does not matter how much they lift because lifting is not their sport. It's how fast they run because track is their sport. We want to get their lifting as high as possible, but we want to stay safe. And it's it's a risk-reward, too. If we're adding more weight to this, is there a risk of injury because they're not used to this and their form might change? So I completely agree. And I really like your answers because you are doing the best with the situation possible, whether it's like a time constraint or you have like, however many kids in the weight room at one time, and you're doing your best to watch all of them. Like it's never a perfect world where you can do your exact program with every single kid because there's all these constraints and you're doing the best and you make adjustments. Again, your philosophy isn't changing, but the little details you make the best out
2: of given your circumstances. Well, that's the best advice you can give any coach. Like what do you have and what can you work with to give you know yourself the best opportunity for success. Like Tony Holler's Feed the Cats, what he does and what he's given, he's a genius. And so like you take those principles and you go, okay, what do I have and what can I do to give myself the best opportunity to get these kids where they need to be? And so for us, Mass Specific Force works really, really well um, with what we're given. Like you said, time constraints, facilities, um, all those things, but the goal of a sprinter in the weight room is strength without mass. And so I'll weigh the kids after they um, after they lift and we'll put that ratio together, high weight, low rep, long rest routine uh, and repeat. And I can do a lot in the weight room in a small amount of time. And in fact, Tony Holler, when he talked about feed the cats, he's like, yeah, yeah, that's feed the cats in the weight room. That's what he called the way that I lift. And that was a compliment to me, you know? And so, um, you know, I was really happy when he, when he said that to me.
0: I want to stay on this for just one or two more minutes, because I think it's something that a lot of people listening are going to want to implement something like this. And I feel like when I listen to podcasts and they don't like quite give me enough to go implement it on my own, I always want more and more. Um, So I have two more questions and then we can move on. But uh, what what are the plyos that you typically will pair with the concentric hex bar? Like, it like pogo jump or like what what are
2: kind of your go tos? Um, That's a great question. Let me let me back up a little bit and maybe just tell you what our offseason will look like, um, which is like the easiest way to kind of articulate the idea of what it looks like to lift this way. We'll lift Monday, Wednesday, Friday, three times a week. Um, and, and we do this after running and you could do it before. I'd like it after. And the reason why is because when a kid's down in the weight room, they're mentally and kind of psychologically just kind of done. Um, it'd be hard for me to go, hey, let's go do some flies. And they're like, I'm just over this, you know? And so you got to think about the psychology of a high school kid. And um, so Monday, we will do um, three by three, 90%, five minute rest between each uh, set. And a kid will do a hexagon deadlift bar. He'll hop in. And I typically have him do a little bit of warm up sets too. And, um, They'll uh, go a set. They'll go up. They'll drop the weight. They'll go up. They'll drop their weight. They'll go up and they'll drop the weight. And then immediately they'll hop up and I can have them do a rocket jump. I can have them do um, a depth jump. But again, it's all very low amount of reps. Um, so like if they're doing a depth jump or even like an altitude freeze jump where they're jumping down and and holding the position in 90 degrees for a few seconds and we'll do like five of those um, pogo jumps is great. Um anything that's allowing them to explode quickly in the correct way is what we want to achieve. Uh, and it's in the weight room. So I don't want them to have to go outside and do like bounds and come back in. I want them to be in the environment. You do it. And let's be honest. Like I have three kids sharing a bar sometimes because we have 12 bars and I might have, you know, 55 athletes in there. So we have to be cognizant about that. So then Wednesday we'll go three by four, 85, 85%, Same type of thing, a different plyometric, something, um, that I want them to do. Like they'll like, uh, you know, a tuck jump five sets, or I'll even have them do like, um, I like bounds sometimes. And by the way, everything I'm saying, it's not so much the, the, the essential activity or the individual activity that I'm doing. It's the fact that I'm doing it with purpose and intentionality. And so having them do like a bound as far as they can, walk back, do it again. Uh, like a broad jump, you know, a broad jump is a great example, um, for like a, a Wednesday. And then Friday we go 95% because I'm going to give them Saturday and Sunday off just to uh, rest, recover. Uh, Tony Holler calls them like sprint holidays, you know, sprinter holidays. Yeah. That's what we're going to do. And so we'll do that. Um, I I'll do that all, all fall and even winter. And then as the season gets into it, we'll do it. January, we'll go three times a week. February, March, we'll start going two. And then end, mid-April to end of May, which is like our championship season, we'll go one time a week. But I lift the kids all year long. And um, every once in a while, there'll be we kind of have these natural breaks. Like Thanksgiving is a natural one-week break. They do anything. The Christmas break uh, is two weeks for us. That's a natural break. Um, spring break is a week. It's a natural break for us. So I don't have to put these, uh, intentional rest periods in the school system kind of does it for me. And so, um, at the end of the day, I'm paying attention to the kid, the individual kid, how do you feel what's going on? What do you want to do? Um, because we lift this way, it's okay. And we go three times a week. I'll give kids days off. Like, you know, it's not lift today because you're feeling super sore and let's, let's tackle this when you're feeling a lot more healthy, because you're going to get a more benefit out of the, out of the exercise when you're feeling better than when, you know, you're feeling fatigued and broken down.
0: Yeah. I, I appreciate you diving more in on that. Cause I, I think that's going to be super helpful.
2: A little tangent here.
1: So it always like, it just makes me scratch my head when in regards to like the NFL combine and there's like an eight to 12 week combine training period that athletes go through. And if the combine is a reflection of how well you're going to do in the NFL, why won't you train like that more often than not? Not just like the eight weeks up to the combine. Why won't you train that like throughout the year and throughout your four years in college and high school? And obviously let the breaks take care of themselves with spring break and winter break and something like, I don't know. It just, and and the feed the cats answers that question because it tries to train speed all year round and it doesn't, it doesn't like increase the volume crazy. So then kids are like burnt out by the time the sport starts But it it never made sense to me why, like, in the summer, you would train so much differently than, like, in the winter if you're trying to get ready, like, for football. Like, it should be, like, speed is a goal. And same with track, too. Like, speed is a goal. It's, like, the number one asset a kid can have. Why aren't we training that more often than not? So I'm glad your training periodization reflects, like, the actual goal of what you're trying to get these kids at. And that is to get faster.
2: Yeah. I mean, everything we're going to do is going to be to make them more successful and I want them to, what I want them to be successful in. And so, um, speed is paramount. So, you know, you have to coach it, you have to teach it, you have to constantly come back to it. And if you have a, a senior in high school, that's one of the better runners in the state, you still have to go through the foundational basic things constantly videotape, show them angles, show them what their foot strike is. And, um, this allows opportunities for success. You break it down, you make it where it's easy to um, see where their mistakes are and how they're going to grow from that. And I mean, my job is to be an encourager. You know, the best thing about a coach is um, I get to sit there and be their biggest fan in the moment. And so I'm constantly like, this is great. Look at your improvement. Look what you're doing. And a kid believes that I mean that who knows what their ceiling is. And I love when kids come up and go, Hey, how fast do you think I can go? I'm like, I don't know. You know, and like, I have no idea how fast you're going to get, what you're going to be. How, I mean, but let's find out together because I'm, I, I get to be on this journey with you. And that's the best part about my job is I get to experience this as your experience in it. And I get to feel the elation when you feel it. And I get to even show that with you and we can share that together. Like, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I don't get paid for those things. And, but who, how do you put a dollar amount on those, those items like that?
1: If I ever move out to California, I'm moving to Orange County and you can definitely train my kids and coach my kids. They're going to run track for you. So if that day ever happens, I will let you know. Um greet 'em.
2: You'll be you'll be my first transfer I've ever gotten. That'd be great.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't want you get any uh legal troubles with that, but uh the the (laughs) message is out there. I think we got about halfway through our uh our outline here. So that just means we're gonna have to have you on the podcast again. I think this episode, we did a great job of explaining like who you are, how you run your program. We got into some specific uh, training, some track principles, things like that. There's a bunch of books that we have both read that we need to go over on, on another podcast. And we can dive in a little bit more about communication and, and working with kids of this kind of like newer generation, this tech generation. So um, before we go, where can our listeners find you? Where can they find the best information about you
2: and your program? So, um, we put a lot of work into the website for this, the school tribucotrack.com. Um, you also can just Google my name. I'm sure something will pop up. Uh, I'm on Twitter and I try to put a lot of content out there. Um, cause as much as I'm trying to grow, I would love to help anybody. Gosh, it's any conversation I ever get in with anybody. I'm going to learn from it. So Um, please reach out to me on Twitter uh, at Trabuco track, T-R-A-B-U-C-O track. Um, We, I put a lot of work into um, the YouTube channel and try to market and communicate what we do and what we're about. And the reason why is because I want the people that are in the program right now to feel valued um, and excited. I want the school to see that we're, you know, we're about something like my entire school, the school that I coach and teach at. And by the way, I went to high school there too. So, it's been a fun, like, kind of, you know, cycle of just being able to be a Tribune Hills Mustang for a long, long time. And I'm sure my kids will go there, you know, God willing, eventually, too. Uh, our YouTube channel has a lot of, like, kind of fun things on there for the public to see. And um, that's why it's out there. We want to communicate what we're about. We don't, I'm not hiding anything. And so, um, who I am and what I'm about and what the kids are about and what the program's about, it's out there. And so, um, I think Twitter and the website and even the YouTube channel are great places to go.
1: I can attest to all those. I reach out to you, you're quick to respond, you put out great information, and uh, the YouTube videos they're very well done. You guys have some some nice camera work, and uh, you have quite the personality on screen. So thanks again for being <laughs> on the podcast. And like I said, we're gonna have to have you on again to dive in a little deeper on this other stuff. But uh, have a good rest of your day, and we'll be
2: in touch. Yeah, man. It was really great talking to you guys. You guys make it easy. Thanks.